it's understanding. There you here I am. It is, it is, uh, this is a, well, this was considered a song. I don't know how, how accurate that is, but it, it sounds like it was a song of uh, the church that they used to sing. And it starts in verse 5, and we read part of it last week. Have this mind among you. And I'm in Ephesians, uh, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5, and we're going to go all the way through 11. And I'm going to read what we talked about last week. <clears throat> Because as Paul has been describing his, well, I, I don't know if it's his dilemma or his situation and where he's at in life. He's in prison. He is rejoicing. He's talking to the people in Philippi. He says, you know, I really love you guys. This is probably one of his favorite, most favorite churches of all that he had planted. Loved the people, loved, the, loved everything that was going on in, in, uh, in, in, in their lives and how people were being saved and, and coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And and so he's, he is encouraging them to continue on in the faith, but he's also encouraging them to, uh, to, to work in areas that might still need some working on. And uh, if you remember, uh, in chapter 1, a few, few weeks ago, in verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he was always looking at people and saying, you got to be worthy of what God called you to be. I mean, it's, it's fine to say that you're a Christian. It's fine that you say you, you go to church. You, you know, it's fine that you say that you love the songs and you read your Bible. But what is your lifestyle like? He was saying, and he would say, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. We've talked about the gospel. We've talked about what it took. We talked about how Jesus Christ had to fulfill what the Father had said in demotion uh, many centuries before, 700 and some odd years before Jesus Christ was even born. We talked about how he was uh, executed on a cross, on a cross that had not yet even been invented, that this form of execution had not even been thought of as of yet. It, this form of execution that Jesus Christ went through didn't actually come into play till almost three, four hundred years uh, after it was prophesied, but maybe two, three hundred years before Jesus Christ was born. And so you have this, this style of execution that God is talking about on how it's going to happen, and it's not even been discovered yet, or at least thought of. There were many ways that he could have been executed. The very first thing they wanted to do to Jesus, they wanted to throw him off a cliff and stone him, if you remember that. He was talking to the people in his own hometown. They says, who do you think you are? You blasphemous fool, talking, saying that you are God. And they picked up stones and they wanted to kill him. Yet he passed right before them. They could have hung him from, you know, from the neck. They could have fed him to lions. They could have sawed him in two. They could have drowned him. There's all kinds of ways that they could have executed him. But this execution, this the gospel message was proclaimed that God will smite Jesus Christ in such a way that people were not even going to have to look at him or look at him at all. And when we talk to people about salvation, we talk to people of how, how people get saved and, and what what constitutes you going to heaven. And I share this with people sometimes. You know, I'll, I'll go to them and I'll ask them, what do you think it takes to get to heaven? And for the most part, most people tell me something to the effect of, well, I, I think what it takes to get to heaven is the fact that I just got to be good. You know, just, you know, I've done some bad things, I know, but, but you know, if I do some good things, it, it'll kind of outweigh the bad. And, and God should let me into his heaven because I'm basically a good person. And the, the problem with that logic or that faulty logic, I should say, is that the Bible says that none of us are good. There's no one righteous. No, not one. As a matter of fact, 
if it was possible, if it was possible for anybody to be good, let's say myself, you know, I can claim all the credentials that I have. I've gone to school. I've been a pastor for many years. I've done a lot of funerals. I've done a lot of weddings. You know, I'm there at the hospital. You know, I believe that if, if you were to add up all my good things, I believe I, I'll, I'll have a good resume. So God, I've done all this good stuff. So you should let me into heaven because I'm a pastor. I have a church. been faithful. been here all these years. If that was the case, then what Jesus Christ, and we've been talking about this, what Jesus Christ did on the cross was a waste of time. The cruel cross that he endured, that was prophesied that he had to go through, someone has to pay for my sin. It's either going to be me, or there's going to be a substitute. And for many years, for the Jewish people, they had substitutes. They had turtle doves, they had pigeons, they had goats, they had sheep, they had lambs, they had bulls that they would, when they would sin, and every day they would bring in the, uh, the sacrificial lamb to the sacrificial system, and the priest would sacrifice that goat, that lamb, that whatever it was, and they would do so on behalf of the person who sinned. And it would temporarily cleanse your sin. That was the system that God had ordained. And when he ordained that, that's what people followed. So they knew that if they were to sin, all they had to do was bring in a sacrificial lamb or a sacrificial pigeon, depending on the severity of the sin. And so that was the system that was set up. But it wasn't supposed to be permanent because as the Jewish people found out, and we know now, they had to do this on a regular basis. Now, when Jesus Christ was on the cross and right before he died, he extended out and he looked up into heaven and he says, Okay, God, my father, it is finished. I've taken on the, world, the whole world's sin. It is done. The sacrificial system is done. We don't need the priest to come before us. It is done. You don't have to go into the Holy of Holies anymore. It is done. The, the, the veil that kept the Holy of Holies sacred and closed off to all the public and uh, the rest of the population except for one priest a year that would go in there, that veil was torn in two, showing that there's now access to God through what Jesus Christ finished on the cross. And so to think that all I have to do is just be good enough. You know, the Bible says if you commit one sin, you're already a sinner. And that sin has to be dealt with. And yes, God is loving. Yes, God is forgiving. Yes, God is, is all merciful and good. But He also has to be just. In order for God to be good, He has to be just. Just like in any case that you would go to, if you would go to a court and somebody had, that committed a, a, a violent crime against you, and if this perpetrator is up on the stand and he's pleading with the judge saying, you know, Your Honor, I've done so many good things, you know, before and even after this has happened and all this that I've done to Sal and his family, you know, please forgive me. I, I've, I've messed up and I'm good. I'm better now. I know that I'm good. And if the judge were to say, well, you know, uh, I, I understand that you've done great. I've got your record here. And because you are so remorseful, then I'm just going to let you go. I'm just going to cut you loose. Now, what would a person like myself or my family say that that's not right? That's not just. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we would probably say is that judge got paid off. <laughs> that's a crooked judge. You see, in order to have mercy and in order to have love, you have to be just as well. And in order for God to show his love and his mercy, he has to be just for those that are not willing to recognize Jesus Christ as the perfect sacrifice that he sent into this world. See, one day when heaven 
when Jesus was in heaven and he was being proclaimed, and we saw this last week, and he was being praised by all the angels, everything that he had, he left it. And he came to this earth to die a cruel death. And this is why Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come or whether and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul is saying, you are in this fight. You are striving side by side. People are going to laugh at you. People are going to not like you. They're going to persecute you just like they did me. And when that happens, it just shows that they are the ones that are in destruction. When people scoff at you or people scoff at the gospel, it just shows that their destruction is coming upon them unless they repent. So he says in chapter 2, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and symphony, sympathy, excuse me, complete my joy by being the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul says, have the same mind, just like Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ emptied himself of himself. He left everything behind, all the praises of the angels, all the praises of the redeemed, all the glory that he had as God, and he left it all behind. And he says, I want you to do the same thing. I want you to get out of yourself. Stop, stop riding on this high horse. Stop thinking that you are all that, that you are the most important person in the room, that if anybody disrespects you, that you have to get right back and disrespect them, or even worse. A lot of our problem today in, the, in our society is that people are getting disrespect. They're not willing to humble themselves. They're not willing to turn the other cheek. They're not willing to say, okay, that's enough. All right. I mean, if that's what you want. They, everybody wants to be first, including us as Christians, as believers. Paul is telling you, humble yourself. Put other people ahead of you. If people want to crowd you, let them go. You know, don't get mad. Hey, you know, you don't know what's going on in their life. And if everybody were to do that, we'd have a better society. But sin has so grabbed this nation, this world, this system. And sin is all about me. I want to sin. The more that I want to sin, the more I sin. And it's not because of the things that I, I, I believe uh, that God is telling me not to do. See, sin happens because I believe that it's the most important thing for me to do at that time. That's why sin happens. See, if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't do it. This is why we constantly have to be flushing that system out of our minds, out of our flesh, out of our life. And one of the biggest parts of sin is my pride, not humility. And Paul says, you need to put all that aside. See, Jesus Christ did it. 
And yes, he was God, and you don't have God qualities, so you can't do the God quality thing. You can't empty yourself of all the glories that Jesus Christ had, but you can empty yourself of yourself. We talked about this last week, and and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And this death on the cross was just not any ordinary death for the Son of Man, for a believer, for the Messiah. You see, though these, we don't have a whole lot of information of the crucifixion in the Bible, except that his hands were pierced and his feet were pierced and there was a cross. And we don't know, there's a lot of commentary about, was it actually a T or was it, you know, capital T or was it an X or was it a tree, as Peter says? Was it one stick? You know, there were all kinds of forms of crucifixions. There were over 30,000 crucifixions that are documented that happened during the time of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was a teenager, uh, before he actually started his ministry, there's the there's the historical records that the Jews had risen up. They went up against Rome. They captured all these Jews, and they crucified 2,000 of them in one day. So crucifixions were a dime a dozen. This is just the way they got rid of people. And they got rid of people of those that, uh, that, that came up against the government. They got, this, is, this was reserved for slaves or for traitors. And the Roman people would not be crucified. You cannot crucify a Roman citizen or a woman. And it was one of the most vilest and cruelest way of execution. It was meant to humiliate you and to show to the rest of the world, this is what happens when you mess up. As a matter of fact, right, right when Jesus Christ was uh, crucified, there were two other people, thieves, and they were getting rid of these guys, and they were going to crucify them. And lo and behold, they, this, there was already a crucifixion in progress, and that was going to happen on that day. And therefore, they says, you know, we got two guys that are going to be crucified. Barabbas is in there. He's going to be next. You know, instead of putting Barabbas in there, guess what? Throw Jesus Christ in there. There were three, and Barabbas was one of them. And so... Pilate says, I'm, let me get the worst one, Pilate, you know, Barabbas. Would, would you, should I let him go or should you, you want Jesus? They go, no, take Jesus. So there were three crucifixions already going to happen that day. And the substitution, the substitutional atonement for Barabbas was taken by Jesus Christ. I, I would be amazed to, to hear Barabbas' story if he got saved. I, I'm, I'm willing to say he did. I just don't know what happened to him. When I get to heaven, that's one of the questions I'm going to ask Jesus. Hey, so what happened to the guy that was supposed to take your place? Where's he at? Oh, come here. Let me show you where he's at. Let me show you what he's done. I can only imagine what Barabbas had, was able to do after he saw the grace and the mercy of God and, and the wrath that was due him poured out on Jesus Christ. Let us not ever forget that we are wretched sinners and we are saved by grace. Let us never ever forget that the love of God is so deep and so profound that He sent His one and only Son to die for our sins. Let us never ever forget the love of God. And not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, not because you're good, Totally by the grace of God, for it is by grace that you're saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. And because of what Jesus Christ accomplished, and because of what he did on the cross, 
God said, you know, now you're not only going to get back into heaven and become God again and, and, and the son of God, but, you know, I'm going to give you a title, a name. I'm going to give you a position that is far above anything or anyone else because of what you have done, my son. And this is where we're at right now in verses 9 through 11. Paul says, therefore, and, and I'm glad I already went through the therefore part, because every time I read the word therefore, you got to remember what the word is there for. And the word is therefore because of everything I just said. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this wonderful name. And many times that we've used this name in a blasphemous way, by either using it as a curse word or just a name that, that sometimes we, we use in excitement or to try to get people's attention. Father, help us to repent from using the most wonderful, glorious name of all, the exalted name of Jesus Christ. And recognize the, the, the authority that that name has. And recognize what that name represents. Father, thank you once again for that gentle push, that gentle promise. But most importantly, for that gentle chastisement as you discipline us and as you move us forward. Because it is it's only because of the name of Jesus, the sweetest name, that we are saved. Lead us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. See, Jesus is Lord. Let me say that again. Jesus is Lord. Oh, come on, man. Do you guys believe that or not? Jesus is Lord. All right, here you go. And he's Lord, not because I say so. He's not Lord because you say so. He is Lord, period. You cannot make him Lord of your life. You cannot make him Lord of this church. You cannot proclaim him and call him to be the Lord of your family, of your business, of your home, because he already is Lord. All I can do, all you can do is recognize that he is Lord. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The problem with the church today is that we've taken that word and we've used it in so many different ways. And we say, oh, yeah, he's my Lord and Savior. And we just use it as a sentence, as a blank, blanket statement. Oh, yeah, I'm, I've been saved. He's my Lord and Savior. You know, and we even tell people you need to make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life. And we tell people, you know, in order for you to be saved, in order for you to be in heaven, you need to make Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life. Oh, OK, how do I make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of my life? Well, just say this prayer. And that's it. Yeah. And, I, and then I get to go to heaven just by saying that, just by making him my Lord and Savior? Yeah. And all your sins will be forgiven. Really? Yeah. And you'll have a wonderful life. Really? Can I get two? That sounds like a deal. Wow. If that's all I have to do. Yes. Preach it, Pastor. Grandpa. <laughs> and if that's all I have to do to get saved, well, then sign me up. You know, I mean, and, and we... we don't even describe or explain what it means to have a Lord over us. You don't even realize the implications of what that means because we try to make it as easy as possible, non-threatening. We don't want to be offensive. We want to be able to get as many people in here because we want a lot of people. And, and believe me, beloved, we do want a lot of people here, but not under the false pretense of saying 
Okay, if that's all I got to say is make Jesus Christ Lord of my life. Well, didn't the Bible say that? Every tongue that will confess Jesus Christ is Lord, that everyone who proclaims Jesus Christ is Lord shall be saved. Isn't that what it says? Doesn't that, wasn't that what the Bible teaches? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and then believe in your heart, then, then you should be, well, I believe. You know, and I'll say it. If that's all it takes, let me in. We got to understand the implications of that. Number one, see, Jesus is Lord, not because I say so. He's Lord because God highly exalted him. You see, God, God, first of all, had to humiliate him, take him to a point from heaven as a human, as we talked about this last week, as a human to a slave, as a slave to death, to death on a cross. And he sunk him down to the pits of hell to experience and to take the wrath of God, the sin that needed to be taken, the, the, the punishment that he needed to take away from us. And God demoted him. And he demoted himself. He emptied himself intentionally. And God smit him. God crushed him. God poured out his wrath on him. And now that Jesus Christ was able to be humiliated and humbled and brought down to the lowest point that anyone could ever go to, then he starts to exalt him. First of all, he raises him from the dead. Second of all, he ascends him through the clouds. Third of all, he is standing, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, standing in approval as Stephen is being stoned. And he is sitting at the right hand of the Father of authority. And one day he's going to be king of kings of all. And one day, every tongue will confess. But see, God highly, highly exalted him. In Philippians 2.9, it says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. In Acts chapter 2, verse 32, the, the, this Jesus, as Peter is proclaiming, this Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. As I... Go over this just a little bit. In Acts chapter 2, if you remember, they're in the upper room. And they're, and they're there. And um, they, they, they call out Matthias to be chosen to replace Judas. And as they are in the upper room, in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they began to speak in various tongues. Now, this is not the Babel that a lot of people speak today. These are actual languages that the Bible talks to us about. There are 16 languages that are spoken by Peter and the apostles. They weren't speaking Babel. They were speaking Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Mesopotamians and Judah and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia. They were speaking these languages that people came from all over the place. And as a matter of fact, as they were speaking, the people say, can't we hear? They're speaking our language. We hear them. And the gift was given to them so that the message of Jesus Christ could be proclaimed in the language that they needed to hear. And there were 16 different languages. And Peter stands up and, and he says, hey, you know, these." well, first of all, they accuse these guys of being drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. I, I, I don't know. I know some people that start early. You know, but I don't know. These guys, they, they said it's not even, it's not even night, it's not even noon. And you're saying that we're drunk. Nobody's drinking here. And that's something that needs to be touched on just a little bit. Because there is this drunkenness that some people seem to put themselves into. And that's not of God. And Peter rebuked that. No, no, no. There is not no drunkenness here. This is an authentic work of the Spirit. 
And you know this because you understand it. You know this because you can hear this. You know this because this is the Holy Spirit whom He speaks through us to you. And in verse 14 of chapter 2, Peter says this, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressing the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And Joel said, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That needs a little bit of commentary, because after Jesus Christ had ascended and the Holy Spirit came down upon these men, now the Holy Spirit resides in each one of us. Prior to this action, prior to the Holy Spirit residing on all flesh, those that are saved, God would send His Holy Spirit to a very specific person at a very specific time for a very specific reason to accomplish a very specific task. And once that task was done to that person, and once it was taken, then the Holy Spirit would come down and empower him to either prophesy or speak in tongues or whatever the case may be. Give him the strength to empower him to do the task that God had called him. Then the Holy Spirit would leave him. And he would come back again upon the person that God had anointed or appointed. This is why David could pray, God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Not that you can ever lose it. You can never lose the Holy Spirit. Once He's in you, He's in you. He sealed you. He, you're a promise. You got the inheritance. You're, you're in. You're done. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came down and accomplished this task on every individual. And so David says, you know, I, I love it when the Holy Spirit is upon me. I mean, I'm just able to see and to sing and to hear and to, to write songs. And this is just awesome. But don't, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. But God says, I have this task for you to do. I need you to write these songs down so that they can be, go on from generation to generation. And, and part of, part of uh, what I'm sharing with you there is in, in John chapter 9. And in John chapter 9, if you go there with me, he's standing in the he's standing in the midst of all the people that are uh, that are there for the, uh, the 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 celebration of the feast of tabernacles. I'm sorry, did I say it? seven? Chapter seven. Yes. He's standing in the midst of the, tab of the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's talking to them about his work that he needs to do. And in verse 37 of John chapter seven, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now get this. John puts in this commentary in verse 39. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not glorified. Did you catch that? 
You see, the Spirit would come upon people to accomplish a certain task. And Jesus said that when that day comes, these, this living water is going to flow from you, which had not yet happened. Because Jesus said himself, you know, I, I need to go, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will send another comforter to help you. And when he comes, he will bring glory to me, he said. And who is he talking about? The Holy Spirit. He will bring glory to me, not to himself, not to the church, or not to anybody else. As a matter of fact, when the Holy Spirit is focused upon, and that is, now, now don't get me wrong, I believe that the Holy Spirit can empower you to do some great, amazing things, to proclaim the gospel mainly. But the Holy Spirit's responsibility is to convict the world of sin. One of the things that people have said to me when they come here and they listen, you know, a lot of times your messages are very convicting, very good, because that's, that's, the, that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is to convict you. You know, somebody once said to me, you know, man, every time I go there, I feel guilty. I said, well, it's because you're a sinner. The Holy Spirit is convicting you, and that's what he should do. But people have gotten the wrong impression. No, he's supposed to make me feel good. He's supposed to make me happy and laugh and, and you know, roll all over the place and just enjoy it and get drunk in the Spirit. And that's not biblical. The purpose of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit is to do is to convict you of your sin. And not to bring glory to himself. Because when the Holy Spirit or a spirit brings glory to himself, you know what gets left behind? Is the cross. We don't recognize, we don't even see the cross. The cross is out of the picture. The sacrificial atonement is taken out. What Jesus Christ has done, everything is diluted. Because of the, the name it or claim it and the, the, all the emotional euphoria that you want, that people want to get from church, and they come here feeling good and they leave here thinking everything's good. Whatever, whenever not, whenever they don't confront their sin. This goes on. This Jesus, Paul says, Peter, Peter says in chapter two, he came down, he, he filled these men with, with the Spirit, and in the last days, he declared, that the Spirit will be poured out in, that, in the same sense. In verse 17, I'm back in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now what Peter began to do, from there he started to say, okay, this is what happened. This is who Jesus Christ was. This is where he came from. God had prophesied this, and then you killed him. He says, you killed the Messiah. And as a matter of fact, in verse 23, let's go to verse 22. Men of Israel, hear the words, these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This plan that God had, it wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't, he proclaimed it in Isaiah, and it was a definite plan, and it was ordained, and it was foreknown of God. Peter says, you crucified and killed by the hand of lawless men. You crucified him. Can you imagine just being accused of murder? But not just murder, but the murder of God's own son. Look at verse 24. God raised him up. 
loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand and I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made him known to me the paths of life and will make me full of gladness with your presence. Paul goes on to say in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he was born and died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with us an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruptions. Already David is proclaiming that the Christ will not see corruption. He will be resurrected. And Peter is putting this together. Isaiah talked about it. David talked about it. Moses talked about it. Verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and and, and out of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, What? Repent. Repent. He said, he didn't say, okay, how many of you guys would like to receive Jesus Christ? Raise your hands. No, he didn't say that. Come forward and I'll pray for you. No, he didn't say that. He said, repent. Repent. Because he is highly exalted. Because he died on a cross. He is Lord. Whether I make him Lord or not, he is Lord. And Jesus has been raised up. And of that, these apostles were witnesses. Look at the next verse in your outline. Romans 1.4. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. And Ephesians 1.20, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And in 1 Peter 3.22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. I cannot make Him Lord. I cannot proclaim Him Lord. I can proclaim Him Lord, but I can't make Him any more Lord than what He already is. All I can do is acknowledge that He is Lord. And He is Lord of my life. When we talk about Lord, and we talk about Lordship, a Lord is the master of a household. And the master of the household tells the slaves when to get up, when to go to sleep, when to work, how to work, what to do. And they are at the master's mercy. Now, most masters back in the day and and even in today's world, most masters, they care for their employees. They care for the people that work for them. They provide for them uh, uh, food. Well, not food. They provide for them an, um, an allowance, a salary, so that they can take care of their families at home. They give them a fair fair wage. And uh, they understand that if they can't keep the individual because he's worth more, he might go and find another job that another boss or a master might want to say, I'll hire them. And and, and 
in the olden days, that's the way it was back then. But back then, once you sold yourself into slavery, into bondage, you became a property of that master. And the master, his whole responsibility was to take care of you because you were doing his bidding. You did everything that he needed to do. He, he trained you. He taught you. There were some masters that would leave some bond servants to take care of everything while they left and went to another city or country or wherever they would go. They'd go away and they'd come back after the harvest was done. And then he would say, okay, so what did you guys do? And they would come forward. Here's what we got. So a bondservant was one that was told what to do. And the Lord of the house told you what to do. You see, we don't see lordship like that anymore. Lordship for us is, okay, it's just a title. It's just a word. That means I'm in and that's it. But we don't come to the word of God to find out what it is that he wants for us. To make Jesus Christ Lord, to, for Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life, you have to obey. This is why, number two, God gave him the name above every name. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. In Ephesians 1.21, it says there, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And in Hebrews chapter 1, he says, After making purification for sins, this is Jesus Christ, he sat down at the right hand of the mighty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This name, God gave it to him because of what he accomplished. This is your reward. On the back of your outline, number three, God expects everyone to submit to that name. God expects everyone to submit to the name of Jesus Christ. And here's what, here's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. So, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Not just the Christians, not just those in church, not just those that believe. Every knee should bow. When the name of Jesus is being proclaimed, and it's going to be proclaimed, when the name of Jesus comes out, and it's going to come out, when the name of Jesus finally appears in all of eternity, and it comes out, and people are going to look up, they're going to say, oh, and every knee will bow. They may not do it now, but every knee, every believer, every non-believer, as a matter of fact, everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth, even the demons, even Satan himself will have to bow and say, I, I surrender, I'm done. Every knee will bow. Now think about this for a little bit. Well, let me go on with this first. Every knee will bow under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word confess doesn't mean to tell God something or say something to God that he doesn't already know. Okay, let me just share this with you, Lord. But the word confess is to agree with what is already known. God, I agree that you are God. I agree that you are Lord. And every tongue is going to agree that Jesus Christ is the Lord, only Him. Now, now when, we, when we find out what the name Lord means, and, and we recognize that everyone's going to do it, and it's going to be done, whether you like it or not, why don't we just do it now? Why don't we just obey now? You see, in 2 Thessalonians, he tells us, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints, and to be marveled at among all those all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed on that day. On that day, people will call him Lord. 
And you know him as Lord. Look at Romans 14 in your outlines, 11 through 12. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess or give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And this is Isaiah. This is Paul going all the way back to Isaiah saying, Isaiah already said this. This is what's going to happen. Every nation, every tongue, God expects praise, adoration. God expects everyone to recognize his son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. It's already expected. It's already done. Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So then this is where we end up at, right? So that's all I have to do is just say it. The word Lord is not just something you say. That's something you live. There are a lot of people calling Jesus Christ Lord. There are a lot of people going around saying, Lord, Lord. As a matter of fact, the demons even came out and said, you are God. You are the son of the most high. You are the one that is Lord over all. You are the one. And, and the devils even believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. But they don't submit to him. So knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord is an act of submission. The lordship of Jesus Christ has to be that he has to be Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He has to be Lord of your life, of your job, of your family, of your household, of your spouse. He has to be Lord of everything that you do. Everything that is being said or done has to go through the filter of what Jesus Christ has instructed us to do. So how do I find that out? Well, you know, like I said before, it's all here. And there's been many of you that have come up to me and said, so what translation do you use? so that I can follow along with what you're saying. And I, and I share the English, I, I read out of the English Standard Version. And the, the translation that you use really has, it still has the truth. But if you, if you want to get a good translation, I mean, just you know, do some investigation. We use the ESV, English Standard Version. But it's in English. They also have them in Spanish, they have them in Russian, they have them in Lithuanian, they have it in all kinds of languages. But it is the same word. And it, it translates the same truth. And we need to know the truth of God. Amen? And, that, and that's how we know what it is that we're supposed to do. You get hired on to a job. And they say, okay, well, here's what we'd like for you to do. Well, I don't know how to do that. Well, then didn't you say you knew how to do it? Well, yeah, I just said that so I can get hired. But we need you to run this, this machine. I've never seen that machine before. But didn't you say you, <laughs> this is the machine that you were brought up on? Yeah, I just said that to get hired. You know, but, but we want you to operate, and, and what we want you to do is kind of help these people here, this group of people, there's 12 men and women that I need for you to manage and help them accomplish this task. Well, I don't know how to talk to people, but didn't you say that you were an expert and in, in linguistic, linguistic expert, and you spoke well, and you're able to train? You know, aren't you a trainer? This is why I just said that, to get hired. Yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, I'm sure you've seen people in your job, <laughs> in your, the place of employment, that have gone to work there, and this, this guy doesn't know anything. I mean, what, what happened? You know, as a matter of fact, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, <laughs> in Matthew chapter 7, you know, and the thing is, is that when you tell somebody that you, you have this expertise, or you have this ability, or you have this, and they hire you for it, and then all of a sudden, you can't do it, what's the thing, what are they going to do to you? Ah, the door. <laughs> 
You know, you know, we, we know somebody that can actually do this. In Matthew 7, verse 21. Basically, Jesus is saying, not everybody that says they qualified can actually work here. Not everybody says, you know, I can do this is actually going to be able to work here. Jesus puts it this way. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is a sobering thought, beloved. And I need for you to really just take this and understand this and apply it to your life right now. For those that are listening within the sound of my voice, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Well, you know, I just wanted to get in. Yeah. Okay. Well, the fact of the matter is, Jesus already knows your heart. He already knows what it is that's going on. As a matter of fact, look at this. Some of these guys were experienced. Some of these guys had the experience. It's not only on my resume. I can do this job. Yeah, but you know what? Jesus says to them, on that day, many, that's scary, beloved, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we proclaim it? Didn't we preach it? Didn't we say and, and, and talk about God by prophesying, by, by talking it over people and by, by sharing it with others? Didn't we do that? We did that. Yeah, we're even experienced. I can, I can even prophesy for you, Jesus, if you'd let me. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your names? Didn't we pray over people and get them healed and remove the demon of, of sickness and of cancer and of all whatever the case may be, the, of anger and division? Didn't we do that? I mean, we did that. And if you like, Jesus, I can pray for you. I can pray for you and cast any demon that you think calling me that I, I can't get in. And didn't we do mighty works in your name? This is sobering, beloved. We got to take a really close look at this. On that day, many, many will say this. Many will be proclaiming themselves as prophets and healers and miracle workers. Many are going to proclaim themselves as such. We did those things, God. Yeah, we did. And then in verse 23, and then I will declare to them, wow, I never knew you. I I don't even know what you're... Who are you again? <laughs> what? But, but we, we were in church. We were there. Yeah, I don't know. I never knew you. So depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. There is a religion, a false religion that is out there working these things and proclaiming it and saying it and stating this is what God says when God never thus said the Word of God is the only word that we will read, that we will adhere to, that we will respond to. The Word of God. People might have various types of things that they'll bring in and they'll, they'll address and sounds good, but what does the Word of God say? And I'm glad to say we've got more people that are starting to come to our Wednesday, Wednesday Bible studies. And we'll do another one if we have to on a different night or a different day. But when you get into the Word of God, you get to understand, okay, and you'll be able to see You'll be able to decipher, <laughs> you know, where does that say that in the Bible? Really, show me, because I can show you a bunch of other verses. Depart from me. Depart from me. And another word that I want you to remember from here is many. 
That's a lot. I don't know how many many is, but I'll tell you something. That's a lot. Last thing I want you to say, I want you to see. Now we talked about this already, but God expects to get the glory. God expects to get the glory. That's just, He expects glory from everyone, everything. He expects it. And everything and all creation gives Him glory. Everything. The sun rises and falls, just as He says. The moon revolves around the earth, excuse me, around the, yeah, around the earth and, and, and cleans out the ocean tide. And the trees grow exactly how He wants. Birds migrate in the direction that God calls them to migrate. If you ever watched Animal Planet, just the amazing ingenuity that is behind it, just the simplest creatures, they all obey God. The ant, the Bible says, they don't have a leader, but they march as as an army. Everything in this planet, everything in all creation, obeys and brings God glory, except for one. And that's you and I. That's man. God expects it. He expects it from every nation. He expects it from every king. He expects it from every country. He expects it from every person. He's God. And He can expect whatever He wants to expect. To the glory of God the Father is the last part of that that verse. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, when Jesus was praying, He says, when we had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. See, when Jesus is glorified, God is glorified. Now look at the rest of this verse. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. John 17, 4 and 5 says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You glorify Jesus Christ, you glorify God. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent me. I've been asked before, so do we pray in the name of Jesus? Do we pray in the name of God? Do we pray with the Holy Spirit? How do we pray? You pray to God, you honor God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. You pray to Jesus Christ, you honor God and the Holy Spirit. The three are one. I always begin my prayers by addressing God, recognizing that He's three in one. I conclude my prayers in the name of Jesus, because that's the name that is above every name. God has given Him a name that is above everything. Is it above God? How can it be above Himself? (laughs) He is God. He can't elevate Himself more than what He's already elevated. So when I offer up my prayer in the name of Jesus and I say amen, I'm basically saying in God's name. And and when we we understand what the Bible says here, see, going back to that verse that we just said, we we just mentioned, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the ones who do the will of my Father. You gotta know what the will of my Father is, Jesus says. And it's not like I didn't teach you. I left you apostles so that they can teach you. I left you the Holy Spirit so that He can convict you of when you're not doing it and when you should be doing it. I left you the Holy Spirit to show you the truth, to guide you, to comfort you. I left you the Holy Spirit and He wrote, the Holy Spirit wrote these words. And He wrote these words using these men to instruct you on what the will of the Father is. But it's sad to say that 
still, people will not dive into the Word of God. Yes, we go through the Word of God here, methodically, step by step, verse by verse. Sometimes it's very boring. I mean, I've heard that as well. I don't need to come to church. <laughs> One lady told me, I don't need to come to church next Sunday. Why not? I already know what you're going to preach on. What am I going to preach on? You're going to preach on 1 Corinthians 11. You did that last week. You did this this week. You're going to do it again next week. I, don't need... I already know what you're going to preach on, really. Okay. Maybe you can tell God that. And we go by it step by step because I want you to know the Word of God. The most tragic thing for a believer is to hear the Word of God, like James says, and not put it into practice. To hear the Word of God. See, Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me ask you to stand. Because I'd like for us to go through this last verse. Go to the last frame, I think. It's called, He is Lord. He is Lord. Some of you might know this right there. And some of you might not. But sing it with me. He is Lord, He is Lord, He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. You have been Lord, you'll continue to be Lord, and you will be Lord. And Father, all I need to do is recognize that and submit to your Lordship. I need to be the servant. I need to humble myself. I need to follow your direction and your instruction. Father, help us, each one of us here, be more diligent into studying and, to dis and disciplined into understanding your word as we look at it and, and it reflects us in a mirror. And as James says, not only to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Now that we heard it, help us do it. So Father, thank you once again for your peace and your comfort, your direction, and for all that you do, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen, amen and Amen. All right. Stick around for some fellowshipping afterward, please. All right.